Hey, it's the Reparadigmed Podcast. Today is the third episode of our How to Read the Bible series. It's the first of a two-part podcast on extra-biblical literature. So here we go. Let's get right into it. So I'm going to share a few familiar plots with you, and you need to tell me where they come from. All right? Okay, I'll do my best. All right, here we go. The earth and sky are unordered, and there are no names for the animals or anything else. Then God creates a man in his image. Humans are made to work on behalf of God. Okay, so that's the biblical creation story. Okay, good. Another one. God creates a man and gives him a divine task, but it was not good for him to be alone. So a woman is then made to save the day, to be the necessary aid, the helper, the deliverer for the man so that the appointed task could be accomplished. The man and the woman begin a divinely approved sexual relationship. The woman invites the man to try new things that he had never previously tried, and she convinces him to eat new things. This gives the man newfound wisdom of sorts, which has epic effects. Uh, Are these going to get harder? Because that's just Adam and Eve. All right. How about this one? God decides to destroy all the land with a flood. However, a man receives a warning to build a large boat to weather the flood that will cover all the land. The man gives a detailed account of the construction of the boat, its specifications, measurements, and the materials used. The man covers the boat with pitch to make it waterproof. Species of all creatures of the land come on board with him and his family to be delivered from the coming flood. The fountains of the deep are opened, and the rains come down until the land is covered in water. When the flood waters have covered the land for some time, the man sends out birds from the boat several times to look for foliage, which would indicate that the waters have subsided. And when the bird does not return one time, the man knows that land has indeed reappeared. So then he opens the door of the boat, lets all the animals out, and offers sacrifices to God. God was pleased with the sacrifice, and he swears never to forget. Yeah, that one was painted on every Sunday school class I ever sat in. That's obviously the story of Noah and the Ark. Noah and the Ark. All right. Another one. A righteous man suffers seemingly unjustly. His friend counsels him that he's done evil, and that is why he's suffering. The man maintains his innocence And he remarks on the apparent injustice of God and of the whole situation. But eventually, the man's fortunes are turned around. Yeah, so that one's pretty obviously Job. All right. A couple more. A bunch of case laws are inscribed on stone, which describe proper conduct for a community of people. These case laws involve what to do if property is stolen or damaged, what are the proper grounds of divorce and other issues related to sexual ethics, when killing is justified, when beating is justified where sacrifices should be offered and when, how to purify oneself before worshiping God, etc. Yeah, so that was what was given to Moses and the Israelites at Sinai. Ten Commandments and the rest of the Torah, basically. Exactly. Yeah, I'm not a smart man, Nick, but these have been pretty easy. Thank you. Like I said, like I said. (laughs) All right, one more. Upon hearing that she would conceive a child from God, a woman says, I am your servant, do to me as you will. The woman does indeed conceive a child, and she does so without sexual relations with a man. The baby is called a child of God, and God is called the father of the child. The child is promised to rule over all peoples, all over every land. Yeah, well, that's the Christmas story. Yeah, Luke 1 and 2. The problem with all these stories is 
None of them are from the Bible. Wait, what? <laughs> Obviously, they sound exactly like stories that we do find in the Bible, accounts that we do find in the Bible. And I kind of wrote up these summaries in such a way to be vague enough so that it could work for the Bible. I specifically am not taking these stories from the Bible. They're all from other ancient Near Eastern literature that are contemporaneous to or predate, in many cases, predate the biblical text. So these are from stories of Atrahasis, from the Epic of Gilgamesh, from a couple other ancient Near Eastern pieces of literature. And like I said, a lot of these are from dated at like 2000 BC. Epic of Gilgamesh goes way back, and we have different fragments and stuff like that. The Atrahasis stories are certainly contemporaneous to the Bible. None of these examples that I gave are in any way dependent on the biblical literature. It's not like they're doing copycats of the Bible. Now, I, I will say, too, it's not like the Bible is necessarily doing copycats of these, but it is interesting that you have a lot of the exact same, almost, motifs, storylines themes that run through biblical stories and then also run through other ancient Near Eastern stories. And this is just a smattering. It's a small sample of the type of similar literature you find in other ancient Near Eastern literature, not the Bible. Sure. So just to clarify for me here, you're saying that when the Bible was written, these other stories that sound a lot like the stories we're familiar with were already in existence and presumably being shared. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very oftentimes. I'm not going to get into the details of when they were finally composed, if the Hebrews were familiar with all of these or not. They were certainly familiar with some of them. Sure. <laughs> and it's really obvious when you just read some of these ancient collections of literature, and then you read the Bible, and you're like, either they are both familiar with a different source that isn't available to us now, and they're both interacting with that same literature, or one is, you know, talking to the other. I, I'm not, the point is not to say the Bible is dependent on all these other sources. It's actually like impossible to prove dependency, um, sourcing a literature like this. But in any case, like I said, it is demonstrably the case that these sources are not copying the Bible. In in particular, I mean the the last one that I gave the the promise to this woman that she'd conceive a child. All right, this was written well well before the New Testament. There's others that I could have given. There's a, a Greek myth with Apollo, Leto, and Python, which way predates Revelation 12. But Revelation 12 is, in this case, I think is arguably interacting with that myth mm. and Christianizing it and making specific theological points with a familiar myth of the time, which I think is super fascinating. And it's not all that surprising. I think me and you make theological points by referencing commonly known pop culture oh sure you know themes of our time as well yeah so anyway it's all fascinating and none of these stories are from the bible but they sound exactly like the biblical accounts and so that is just to demonstrate that reading extra biblical literature or literature outside the bible from a similar time similar places can be very insightful into reading the biblical text yeah. And what we see is that the biblical text is not just talking about a bunch of unique things. It's not its own genre, talking about all of its own storylines that are just completely unfamiliar to anyone else. Oftentimes, it's interacting with mm. stories, motifs, myths that are familiar to the people that it's writing to, that it's communicating to. Sure. Which we shouldn't at all find surprising. Yeah. So, 
the people who you know first read these pieces, you know, the biblical pieces, yeah, they likely would have read this and been like, okay, these are stories like stories I've heard, or mm-hmm. at least in the genre, you know, that I've heard. They're not picking these up and going, oh wow, everything about this is brand new to me. It fits within kind of their their comfort zone. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And in fact, I think that the theology of the Bible, let's just say for the Old Old Testament in particular, I think that the theology is both discerned and amplified even more when compared to similar stories from the ancient Near East that aren't in the Bible, because you see what the Hebrew author is doing differently than those stories. You might share a motif, let's just say the flood story. There are multiple flood stories that probably predate, but are certainly contemporaneous to the biblical account. (laughs) They're very similar. Like I said, they describe details that you could leave out, but they still share with the biblical account, like even like the sacrifice at Mm. the end of it all or the releasing of the of the bird, you know, to look for land. Like these are details that are so similar. But when compared, there's a Atrahasis version as well. When you compare that one to the biblical text, the Noah account, or or the Gilgamesh account with the Noah account, you do discern differences in theology. Mm-hmm. And it's in those differences that I think, you know, the, the author is really trying to make a point about Yahweh, God of, God of heaven and earth. Sure. Sometimes taking a story people know and adding a twist to it or adding something into it sometimes really makes a point pop out more than if you just tried to make that point by itself. Yeah, or tell a brand new story. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think it's a powerful tool, and we see it all the time. Like I said, this is just a sampling, but I thought it would be kind of fun to to kick it off in, in that way. So the question is really why study extra biblical literature? And I think we want to say that the biblical author's intent, like we always say is the goal, their intent is discerned more accurately by the study of extra biblical context. We talked before about intra-biblical context or the, the literature that's found within the Bible and how that illuminates later authors of biblical works. And now we're just focusing on, yeah, actually, if you go outside the Bible as well, that is also very illuminating or giving us the tools that we may use to discern the author's intent. And we think that there's three things that reading extra biblical literature can help illuminate as we try to discern the author's intent. One is worldview, illumination of the author. The other is the genres that the author is working with. And using. And then the other is just the history, the, the historical setting that the author finds themselves in. So the first one, worldview illumination for things like cosmology, social norms, stories. It's very helpful to have more than just the Bible to illuminate what one thought about these things. So, for example, in cosmology, from the evidence we have, basically all of the ancient Near Eastern people, including the Hebrews, had a what what some people call like a snow globe cosmology. So when you say cosmology, just clarify here, you're talking just how the world, how it exists. Yeah, like what the solar system looks like, heliocentric, geocentric, what the Earth is shaped like, things okay. like that. Sure. Yeah. And I'm not going too broad, like they wouldn't have known any, had any idea of how large the universe was. So let's keep it local to the earth. What the, what, what the earth looks like, sure. <laughs> what's above the earth and around the earth and things of that nature. So 
like I said, the ancient Near Eastern people, including the Hebrews, had probably something like a flat Earth view. They thought the Earth was flat or a disk or something like that. And they almost all share the same view that it is covered by a hard, clear dome that holds back waters above that dome. Sure. So there's waters underneath the land, and then there's waters above the sky dome. Oh, sure. Because if, the- if you dig down into the ground, you find water. Yeah, or the rains, oceans. Yeah. You go down, down. You know, and if you descend sure. um, down to sea level, you, you, you know, you find oceans eventually as you descend down off the plant, you know, off the off the mountainscapes in the in the Mediterranean world, I guess. Uh, eventually, you'll run into the Mediterranean Sea or the Red Sea, Reed Sea, or, or something <laughs> like that. You know, so yeah, they all share this view. And, and the Bible is no exception. There is both within the Bible and outside the Bible, it's just like taken as a fact that there's this hard dome that covers over the probably flat earth and that above the dome, like I said, there's water and that sometimes the what are called the windows of the dome, the windows of heaven are opened and water comes pouring in. And that's what happened in the flood. Mm. And that's what the flood account that's found within the Bible says. And that's what some other accounts say or something similar to that. The Hebrew word for this dome is rakia. And it literally means that like hard barrier or basically ceiling. That's what the word means. Sure. And it shouldn't be surprising to us when we, like I said, like when we read other ancient Near Eastern literature, they're all describing the same type of thing. It's not crazy. If you walk outside on a nice it's not crazy at all. cloudless day, like you look around and you see just what looks like blue, the same distance in every direction, mm. like that looks like you're inside yep. a dome. Yep. And the, the sun, moon, stars, those were all thought to either be lodged within that solid structure and rotating through it, otherwise more likely underneath it. Sure. And they all were thought to go around the earth. In some mythology, the sun is thought to... You know, when it goes down and peaks below the horizon, it's thought to go into like the underworld. You know, that language only makes sense. And it traverses through the underworld and makes this epic journey. And then it comes up on the other side. That language actually only makes sense if you assume that the earth is flat. Sure. There's not an under to a round ball. Yeah. Well, we still use that same kind of language today. We talk about the rising of the sun, the setting of the sun, even though we all know that Right. The earth or the sun right. is not actually coming up and down relative to yep. us. So that, that's just an so example. It looks that way. That's an example. So it, it would be easy to read the Bible. If you only had the Bible, it'd be easy to take our theology into the reading of these ancient <laughs> biblical texts and to be like, well, this book is, you know, the Bible's from God. He wouldn't allow for the authors to have any, you know, misunderstandings of science or cosmology, would he? And we maybe assume, no, he wouldn't. So there's no way rakia means hard dome over a flat earth. Oh. That's just not the way it works. He did. <laughs> and that's what they thought. And that's fine. And so it'd be easy to take that reading and to then make these words mean what they don't mean. Let's just, let's just say rakia. We could easily kind of fudge with that and make it mean other things if we didn't have the rest of the ancient Near East also describing the same thing. Now it's a lot harder to do that because it's like, okay, well, I think everyone's talking about the same thing here, including the Hebrews. It's probably not justified to make some special pleading or <laughs> or make up some different meaning for, you know, for Rakia. What's interesting enough to me, I think, is in like the King James Bible, they translated Rakia as firmament. Sure. 
Because they knew what it meant then. Something it's actually hard. more in modern translations that we start wrestling with this. We're like, no, it couldn't actually mean that. Well, it could, and it did. Sure. So, like, being aware of that helps you realize that this creation story in Genesis isn't, isn't trying to teach a new cosmology. It's, yeah. it's just speaking to the cosmology that everybody shares, but it's going to use that to try to teach something else. Try to so, teach theology. Sure. So, that should help us, you know, comparing Genesis with all these other stories to see what the actual intent of the author there is. Absolutely. I yep. see. Well said. So another example of worldview illumination would be like social norms, things like treaties, case laws, gift giving, gospel announcements. Mm. These are all common themes to extra biblical literature. Not they're not just found within the within the Bible. So so we get insight into how treaties work. Not only by reading the biblical text, which gives us some insight, but also if we read outside of that a little bit, we, we realize that, for example, treaties are basically always made in the ancient Near East in the context of a meal together between nations or, you know, leading political figures of the nation. And so when God prohibits the Israelites from eating with Gentiles, what he's, what that in effect does is it keeps the Israelites from joining in treaties with these, you know, close political alliances with these other nations of the land, which then has the effect of keeping them separate and holy to God for his purposes at that time. And this actually is a big deal even in the New Testament, because the Jews were very conscious of like, no, we're not going to eat with these Gentile sinners, mm. um, because that was all birthed out of the Torah instructions. And there was a reason for that. And it was in part to keep them from joining in treaties and, you know, close political alliances with these other nations. Interesting. Yeah. yeah that, is, that is strange that those food laws that we look back on now and we're like, oh, it all seems so strange, <laughs> but it was actually really central to the way they function politically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's insightful. You don't, you don't always get all that from the, from the Bible. Maybe you could mine that one out of the biblical text itself. Um, but anyway, eh, that's helpful. Another one that I think is really interesting to think about is things like gospel announcements. Mm. We don't only find gospel announcements in the Bible. We certainly do. <laughs> we do we do find gospel in Bible, announcements yeah. in the Bible. <laughs> the Bible does not have a monopoly on gospel announcements. <laughs> this is common. It's common probably before this too, but it's common I'm thinking in particular of in the Roman world where the emperor would would gain a great victory in battle. Then he would send forth his couriers, his mail carriers, his announcers or whatever to the town that he's coming into next. And they would say, good news, Evangelion, Caesar is king and he's conquered all the enemies and he has brought peace to all the earth. The common language, common vocabulary that was used. That's insightful for when we read the Bible and we see that same language used for the arrival of Jesus on the scene. It actually makes it sound like that Christian gospel announcement, the announcement of Jesus then would have been uh, like probably not well received by Rome. It would have been seen as the very, very much a challenge to their power. Very political statement. Yep. Yeah, we'll leave that one there. I'm sure we could talk <laughs> a long time about that one. But again, extra biblical literature, literature outside the Bible helps illuminate, in this case, what the biblical authors are doing with these themes. Also, stories illuminate perhaps a biblical author's worldview. 
other stories provide content that informs the way the biblical authors understand the world. And we talked about this a little bit with the cosmology stuff, but sometimes these extra biblical stories are used and even quoted by the authors of the Bible to help make the point they want to make. And uh, I think I kind of mentioned this a little bit, but let's just think of the creation story, for example. As I shared earlier with those examples I was giving, the ancient Near East had creation stories as well. And they very often sounded kind of similar to the Bible. Okay, they're not the exact same, but we saw that some of the themes overlap. Mm. <laughs> More than one theme. Yeah, you know, there's a lot over, there. Overlap. So when we see, again, the differences, what the Hebrew Bible is saying about Yahweh, God of heaven and earth, the most high God, when we see differences between the biblical text and the other ancient Near Eastern creation texts, that's where the theology is. That's where the uniqueness is. That's where the bold claim is. Mm. And so reading these other stories can sometimes actually heighten our theological imagination. They can heighten what the teaching of the Bible is in that context. Sure. It's like if you were to retell a group of people today a story they're really familiar with, right? Maybe you go back and recount the events of Avengers Endgame, mm -hmm. but you were to totally twist the ending into something really different. People who are familiar with that story are going to really be keyed in immediately. They're going to go, okay, the important part of this story is this twist at the end. Yes. Whereas somebody who's not familiar with Avengers Endgame at all is going to hear the whole thing and it's all just going to kind of feel like a murky story to them. It's not as clear and what the author's trying to do. They might get it. They might, they'll probably understand what you're saying. I mean, it would just be a new story to them, mm -hmm. but, but it, it wouldn't be so shocking, so insightful, so contrary, you know? Yep. Unless they're familiar with the with the with the other plot, with the more familiar plot, perhaps. Sure. And then they saw you make the twist on it, and they're like, "Oh, that's what he's saying. That's what he's communicating here. That's the important part, the part he changed." Mm, yep. Um, another one is there's a lot of polemical writings in the ancient Near East, not only within the Bible but outside the Bible. What are polemical writings? Well, what, what I'm thinking of in particular as an example would be like writings that discredit other traditions, other myths, other religions, other gods. So there's a lot of like god trashing going on. I like so they diminish the others and promote one's own, uh -huh. one's own religious tradition, one's own theology. And so we see this in the Old Testament actually all the time in the prophets where God is just making fun. Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is just making fun <laughs> of the idol statutes that people are tempted to start accruing for themselves and the other so-called gods of the world and gods of the other nations. Sure. And there's a really colorful, picturesque language and, it, and it's hilarious sometimes. Think of like the, you know, the Baal story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> where Elijah and the prophets exactly Baal's not answering the call of the of the faithful worshipers <laughs> and God's like <laughs> maybe he's using the bathroom sure so uh, polemical there's trash talk I kind of like that yeah trash talk basically yeah yeah those are just some examples of how the ancient Near Eastern literature that's not found within the Bible can help illuminate the worldview of the biblical author in several different ways and we would say the same thing also about like the genre that the biblical authors are using, are writing within. Yeah, for sure. I think genre is an interesting one because the culture you grow up in, you're exposed to different types of genres and you start to be able to interact with them so easily, right? I, like somebody reads a tweet, you don't even really have to be told that it's a tweet probably. You know, you just hear the tweet or hear the quote and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm familiar with that. It's tweets, it's short, pithy, it's usually intended to 
maybe be controversial or spicy because you're trying to gain followers and, yeah. you know, try to gain some notoriety. But understanding the way that that's communicated is really kind of grounded in the culture. Mm. Like I said, we do this with a lot of different kinds of genres and we do it really easily. And I think the biblical authors were doing the same kind of thing. I mean, it certainly sounds like they were interacting with these stories that existed mm-hmm. um, and probably writing in very similar genres. Yeah. You know, I don't think people were you know, picking up the scroll of Genesis for the first time going through it and being like, wow, I've never read anything like this. Yeah, they're, absolutely they're, not. They were going through this and being like, okay, I've, I've read this type of story before. Mm-hmm. And then they're going, oh, wait, but there's cool twists here. Mm-hmm. So they're writing into a genre that people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. When you're really familiar with the genre, it's powerful because it it steers the way that you read and understand the writings a lot. And that's great if you're familiar with the genre, because there's a lot of just kind of like assumptions there that the author doesn't have to come out and tell you. They can just use these assumptions mm-hmm. and write in such a way that you're going to now pick up on what they're trying to do. But if you're not familiar with the genre, it can become, you can get kind of the opposite problem where you're maybe not quite sure how to get to what the author is trying to say. Yeah. You don't know how to read it if you don't know the genre. Exactly. And this seems strange to talk about this. Growing up in the church, I was so so encouraged to read the Bible. Try to think back to the first time you read sections of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Like A lot of it seems super strange. Mm-hmm. I think as you become more just familiar with what the words say, like some of that feeling of strangeness goes away. Mm. But that first time you read it, pretty clear to most people, it's like, okay, I've never in my modern culture, read anything that's quite like this. It's a very different genre most of the time. Yeah. And and we should say too, the Bible has a bunch of different genres. So, some things do feel a little more familiar to us immediately, mm-hmm. like the letters. Yeah. You know, that's like, okay, someone's writing to someone that kind of feels, feels normal. He's just trying to communicate in a rather straightforward fashion for the most part. And then like the, the Psalms, for example, you kind of get it. You're like, oh, this is poetry. I kind of know how to read poetry. I'm not going to press it for literalness or anything like that. It's poetry. Yeah. But there's a bunch of other sections of the Bible that are neither straightforward communication like a letter or what we would call poetry. Yeah. And I do wonder if Maybe the Psalms and the letters in the New Testament are so beloved because we are more familiar with those genres. A little bit easier. Yeah. We don't feel like we're having to do work to kind of understand this in a way that feels natural to us. Yeah. But like I said, a lot of other parts of the Bible, and I think even in the even in the letters and in the Psalms, there's some genre work that's not quite what we're yeah. used to today. So maybe we need to be a little more mindful of that. Hmm. But yeah, especially with like narrative history, you read through you know, Genesis, Exodus, and you're like, okay, it's definitely a narrative, but it's not a history textbook. It's not written the way any other history we've read. It's not by any means comprehensive or yep, it's not you know, comprehensive. or even following up timeline. Sometimes they're skipping back and forth in time, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You'll get weird, like zoomed out, you know, big statements about what's going on and then super detailed stories about specific individuals. Like I've never read any other genre significantly that is quite the same. Mm. So I think we need to be mindful of this. And if that seems strange, I think it's helpful, again, to remember that we do the same thing in our culture, mm. where we will easily move between genres. But because our culture is so familiar with these, it becomes really easy. Like, think about satire. All right, You can go read an Onion article or the Babylon Bee, mm. and you know it's satire. Even if you didn't know it was satire coming into it, as soon as you start reading it, the way that it's written presents itself as satire. Yeah. Like it, you're pretty easily able to decipher, okay, this is satire. And because it's satire, you know how to read it. You know that what they're saying is not what they mean, but that they're still very much trying to make a point about something. Yeah. 
if you were not familiar with satire, right? If you took somebody from another culture where they don't have that kind of genre, they weren't familiar with it, and they read a Babylon Bee article, they might not really have any idea what's going on. <laughs> they might, in fact, think that the author is communicating the opposite of what they're actually <laughs> trying to communicate. Our own culture does that sometimes. I feel like satirical sites and satirical statements often get in trouble because people don't understand <laughs> that it's satire. Like our own culture sometimes has a hard time with satire. <laughs> yeah. Well, you think about like political cartoons where you have to be really tuned into what's going on, mm-hmm. you know, in our culture and current events to be able to understand what a political cartoon is actually trying to say. Yeah. Half of what's being communicated is just in the exaggerated animation of that figure, not even in the words that they put in their mouth. Exactly. And even if you're tuned into politics today, if you go back and you just pull political cartoons from 40, 50 years ago, if you're not really familiar with the events surrounding those cartoons, you're not going to be able to quickly understand what's going yeah. on super tied into that close context. I think about social media feeds. What happens if a thousand years from now, most of our writings are destroyed, but somehow social media feeds survive and you've got future archaeologists trying to reconstruct human history through social media feeds. Like, I hope they don't just go through social media feeds and assume that everything reported is exactly correct or is unbiased in any way. What is a social media feed? Is it an autobiography? Is it a history? I don't know. Yes, no, kind of. Like, you have to be familiar with what social media feeds are and why people put information it's on there. narcissistic self-projection. There we go. Yes, a lot of <laughs> narcissistic self-projection. I like that. Think about memes. Like, memes are huge in our culture today. <laughs> yeah. People communicate lots of things through memes. But if you're not familiar with what a meme is, mm-hmm. it makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. If somebody far in the future is picking up memes and looking at and they're just like, why... Do I keep finding these weird, gross cartoons with like random collections of words on them? Yeah. Like out of context, these are going to mean nothing. Do it. Do it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like we get Christmas letters every year. I always think that's interesting to see what a Christmas letter is because somebody's not trying to give you a full history of their family, you know, how they began. It's recap of what happened in the last year. Like if you didn't know that and you just read a Christmas letter, you'd be like, wow, this is a very strange, random letter to send out to people. But in our culture, it's a normal thing to do. Once mm-hmm. a year, you, you find your nicest picture of you and your family and your dog and mm-hmm. write fun little things you did about the year and send it out to everybody. You find your nicest picture. And by that, you mean the person that's sending out the Christmas letter finds the picture that they look the best in. They don't care about the rest of their family. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's how I would do it. I've never done it, but that's a, I would surf through all the photos of that day and make sure that I chose the one that I look the best in. <laughs> one other genre I've got here is movie scripts. And I think this one is interesting because when you read a movie script, it's clear to you that just reading this is not the final form of what this is intended to be. Oh, like if you didn't know that this was supposed to be the backbone of a film. Exactly. Yep. You'd, yeah. You just think, oh, that's kind of a strange way to write a story. <laughs> yeah. You could take a great movie and I bet the script would be pretty boring to yeah. read through. And I think this one is helpful because especially Old Testament was written to be performed orally. Like in these oral cultures, most people interacting with this, we're not going to be reading it. So if the text is designed to be read, you've got to be aware of that when you're interacting with the actual text itself. Because mm. that's going to help you understand how the author is communicating. Mm. <laughs> this is not on topic, but you're telling me 
that most of the Bible was not written to be read, but to be listened to. Yes, I think so. And listened to as a group. We should have three podcasts about that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, with literacy rates and stuff like that, that that has to be the case. I mean, I mentioned Old Testament there specifically, but that's very much true of the New Testament. The letters, Revelation. It is. The stuff was designed to be brought to a church and somebody to be probably for whoever brought it to basically perform it to the church. Right. That's what I was going to say. Didn't Paul send someone with his letter to read it to the churches or to the church that he's sending it to? Yeah. Yeah, Revelation has that blessing for people who are, you know, reading it out loud. And I don't think that was supposed to be like, a, oh, hey, now as a bonus to how you would normally interact with this letter, go do this other thing. It was like, hey, this is kind of how this is expected mm. to be delivered and received. Performed out loud. Exactly. So then the next time we read Revelation, we should read it out loud and see if it does new things for us. <laughs> Seriously, though, I mm. mean, we tend to study the stuff a verse at a time, but being familiar with the idea that, okay, this was intended to be taken as a whole piece. So sometimes yeah. if you're writing something to be performed, you're going to be mindful of the emotional response of the audience. Yeah, you're going to take the audience on a journey it, through the whole piece of literature, not just through the first two verses or something. Exactly. Like a famous sonata or something, you know, a big musical piece. Piece might last half an hour. And it's designed to kind of take listeners through a journey. You know, that piece is going to have a flow and up, a down. Mm. And I think a lot of the letters, Revelation especially, were written with that same kind of flow. They're designed to be taken in as a full piece from beginning to end. Yeah, we had conversations about this when we were talking about in Bible context, the idea of reading big. It's not inappropriate to analyze a one minute section of that. Would you say Sonata or something like that? Sure. It's not inappropriate to do that, but that's certainly not the only thing you should do. It's probably actually not even the main thing you should do. The main way that that musical creation, that half hour long musical creation is intended to communicate is actually through the whole. And then, of course, you can break down the parts, but they're actually supposed to be all contributing to the whole. Anyway, that's a conversation that we had last last time. But Exactly. So the Bible is this collection of writings with all these different genres. And they're genres we're not often familiar with. Mm. So extra biblical context here. If you go and find other writings, you know, from around the same time, the same culture, you're going to interact with the same kind of genres. Mm-hmm. And more interaction with those genres is only going to help you be more comfortable with how to read and interpret those genres right. that we find in the Bible. Yep. 100%. And speaking of revelation, this is one of the best examples of this in my mind is Jewish apocalyptic literature. Mm-hmm. We find this type of literature expressed or this type, this type genre expressed in Revelation, in parts of Daniel and in parts of like the minor prophets, some of the major prophets, but not a whole lot of it in the Bible. I guess some in the Gospels as well, a little bit, maybe. Well, I guess it depends on how you categorize what Jesus is doing. But in any case, not, not a whole lot. It's not like the whole Bible is this genre. There's just sections of it that are, that do that do align with this genre type. It's the extra biblical writings, the intertestamental Jewish literature in particular, that really illuminate how you're supposed to be reading this genre. And then once we learn, oh, okay, this is how they want this stuff to be read. Now we go back into the Bible text again, and we're like, oh, this is making a bunch more sense now. Yep. Entire eschatological systems or end times (laughs) systems of theology have been built on readings of Revelation 
that haven't taken into account its genre, which can be easily discerned by reading, in particular, extra biblical literature, yeah. um, Jewish apocalyptic literature that's not found within the Bible. And it's kind of unfortunate because it's like, whoopsies, we just messed up an entire book of the Bible or more mm-hmm. and built an entire theological system based on it. And it was actually easily discerned how we were supposed to be reading that we just didn't do it. Yep. Yeah, if somebody who wasn't familiar with satire read a satire piece and totally misunderstood it. And started teaching everyone at their time and place what it meant, but they had no idea what they're talking about. Yeah, maybe I would try to explain to them how satire works. Maybe I would say, you know what, just go read a whole bunch of other satire. Yes. I think that familiarity with the genre is going to help you when you come back to this piece to understand what they're actually trying to say. All right, so... Reading ancient Near Eastern literature that's not found within the Bible can illuminate the worldview of the author, can illuminate the genre type that the authors are working with. It can also illuminate the history. And this is the the last point we wanted to make about this. There's definitely more than these three, but it also illuminates the history in that it helps us understand, for example... If we read literature outside the Bible, we we really get an understanding that the Israelite kingdom, for example, was just an underdog. It was tiny Mm. compared to a lot of the other dominant empires of the world throughout their history, not just in in the beginning in the monarchy, but really throughout Israelite history, it's always been a small nation that wasn't a big player on the world stage. Mm-hmm. And by world, I mean, we're thinking of a very specific geographic region of the world, sure. <laughs> basically Middle East and some parts of some parts of Europe and some parts of Northern Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's what we mean when we say ancient Near East, I, I guess. But that's insightful for when we're reading the biblical text, that these are underdogs. <laughs> like the, this Israelite story is an underdog story. Mm-hmm. That can be insightful in various ways, which we don't really have to get into. We have a very historical religion. God working in history yeah. is very central to how we understand him. Mm-hmm. And so throughout the Old Testament, the Gospels, the story of how God actually interacts with humans is crucial to our understanding of who he is mm-hmm. and what he wants for us. Now, the Bible is giving this information through history, through you know their genre of history, mm-hmm. you know, these but the Bible is not trying to give a full history of the world. So there are huge parts of this history that are very critical to kind of setting up the context of the biblical parts that are recorded. But these kind of filler parts are not within the Bible. And they didn't need to be because when the Bible was written, it was assumed that that historical setting was known because it was known to those people. Again, yeah. the Bible was written by particular people to particular people. And the authors, editors, were assuming a lot, just as we assume a lot. When I write you something, I assume that you share my culture and my history and my time and place. Because you do. You're sitting right in front of me. You're not from 1935 in Ireland. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Matthew doesn't start his gospel off and feel the need to fill in all the history from Malachi up to present day. Right. To his present day. Right. Because it was all understood. So again, it's only because we are quite removed historically, geographically usually, from the authors and and recipients' time and place of the biblical writings. It's only because of that that me and you need to do a little bit of extra work now 
and situate ourselves historically. And the Bible doesn't always give us everything that we'd like to have for that historical setting. But there's a bunch of other literature that can help us gain that knowledge of that historical setting. And then the Bible just, again, becomes more understandable, becomes clearer what the author is doing. Just think of like intertestamental history and how that helps set the stage for what's going on at the time and the place of Jesus of Nazareth with the <laughs> complicated, intense relationship between the different Jewish sects and the Roman Empire, for example. Like all that context is not at all clear when you just pick up the gospel accounts of Matthew or whatever. But that is essential for understanding what's going on in any of the gospel accounts, particularly the synoptics. And again, none of it, none of what we're saying here is to say, you know, you can't read the Bible without any knowledge of extra biblical literature or ancient Near Eastern literature that's not found within the Bible. That's not the point. The point is, if you want to understand the Bible more, then it's always going to be helpful to understand this other stuff more. Yeah. yeah the biblical authors are writing with an assumed worldview. Mm. They're writing in genres that they assume their readers are going to be familiar with. And they're writing given a historical context that they assume that the people they're writing to are familiar with. Yeah. So if you're not familiar with their worldview, you're not familiar with the genre they're writing in, and you're not familiar with the history, it's going to be really, really hard to pick up the Bible and understand what's going on. Absolutely. Absolutely.